So Jesus picks that colt instead of a horse as he comes in Jerusalem and he fulfills Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So do you see why the Old Testament now is so important to us, even as New Testament Christians? It's incredible, it's vitally important to us. It's vitally necessary to us. We must have it. If we do not have the Old Testament, then Christ is just this crazy guy performing some magic tricks in the New Testament. But if we have the Old Testament, he's perfectly fulfilling literally every single prophecy about him to the point where he chooses before he comes into Jerusalem to say, hey, you guys who don't know what's going on, go over here to this village. There's a donkey there, by the way. There's a colt of a donkey that's never been ridden. I want you to set this up so that I can ride this bad boy into Jerusalem. And even the people who went and did that for him did not understand the implications of the fulfillment of that text in Zechariah until Jesus actually went back up into heaven. And so we have this beautiful perspective of New Testament Christians. We're, we're, we're getting to do the, the whole, you know, Monday night quarterback thing. We'll get back and say, yeah, of course, you, yeah, you didn't see that. That was really foolish. That was really dumb that you guys didn't understand that this text was about to be fulfilled. But how little of the Old Testament is actually known in most churches. How little. Not only was he about to ride in Jerusalem and die a terrible death at the hands of people who hated him, in order that he might appease the wrath of God against those who are his, those who belong to Jesus. But he fulfilled every single portion of scripture along the way. And he did so perfectly. He was perfect in his obedience, perfect in his willingness, and he knew he was about to become the most perfect sacrifice. One of the awesome things that... Uh, we have is the Bible. It's really awesome to have a Bible. Um, when I think about all the people and all the places that, that I've been where people didn't have Bibles or had no access to Bibles, or if they had Bibles and the wrong people found out about their Bibles, they would confiscate them, they would beat them, they would imprison them, or they would kill them. And we have an absolute grace and again, remember what the, 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 the literal theological definition of grace is unmerited favor. There's nothing that we did to deserve the blessings that we have. Nothing. And so when we are able to pick up our Bible in our pew and literally flip open the pages and read the Word of God, that in and of itself is grace. So please remember that. Uh, if you've been uh, paying attention to the, the flight path of John, we're still just in chapter 1, but today's a little bit different because it is Palm Sunday. And so to continue on with our exposition of John, our primary text is going to be from John chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 9. But I want you to constantly look to the Christ constantly to look to the Christ. And, and if we think about all the different things 
in life and in the world that we get caught up in and we get focused on and we just totally lose track of, of where we are, where we should be going, and what our ultimate end state is. It's really foolish. And it's so difficult, and I'd be the first to admit my own sin in often seeing temporal things or earthly issues or earthly uh, disagreements cloud my vision of the Christ in the Bible. And so my prayer and my hope today is that, again, it wouldn't just be one day where we look at something like Palm Sunday and get all excited about Palm Sunday in the same way that people get excited about Christmas just because it's Christmas. But if we really think about it, if we boil down, if we, if we synthesize, if we distill our religion into one thing, it's Christ. It's not a particular day. It's not just the day that He was born. It's not just the day that He did X, Y, or Z, or the day that He died, or the day that He rose again. It's all about Christ. So think about that as we, as we look at, at what He's doing here, what happened to Him, what was going on in the background, but also what His expressed intent and purpose was. Bow with me before we open in the reading of our text. Father God, show us Christ. Father God, show me Christ. God, help us to lower ourselves. God, to unburden the weight of this week or the perceived weight of the next week or of the next hour of the next day. God, let this be a time to see Christ and Christ crucified, the forgiveness of sin, the glorious act of obedience of Christ, the humility of Christ, and the great power of the Christ. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this. It is in your name we pray in accordance with your will we ask. Amen. Again, we'll be in John chapter 12. John chapter 12 Starting in verse 9, we're going to read all the way through 19. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that He, Jesus, was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom He raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also. It's an interesting statement there. Because on account of him, on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, when he went back up into heaven, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that, he had done, that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason, also the people went out and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. That's powerful. 
That's powerful. And, and all too often, this is one of my, I'll admit, one of my own faults, all right? even as, a, even as a, a, a pastor. All too often, one of the things that I do is I get excited about the narrative, and I read the narrative, and I get excited about the overarching emphasis of the story, and then I miss a lot of the really important details because I'm just excited about the story. So should we be excited about the story? Yes, absolutely we should. But should we also take the time to break down the individual parts and look at them and see what they actually mean? To see what they're actually about? And the answer to that is also yes. Because if we're going to be Christians, in the same way that if I'm going to be an Olympic sprinter, it's not always just about the one race that leads to the goal. It's about every time you step out onto the track to train. And so as we prepare to train ourselves in righteousness and godliness, as we sit under the teaching and preaching of the Word, let us constantly look to Christ and let's actually dive deep. So I'm going to read this again. This is verses 9-11. through 11, John chapter 12, 9-11. The first section on your handout. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that He was there. Now this would be in Bethany six days before the Passover. So He's not in Jerusalem yet. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Point one. There will always be those who are excited to follow Christ. Always. But there will always be those who are bent on destroying the Christ. We've said that a lot. And when we look at John's Gospel account, he does this really cool thing. It's ones and twos, right? It's light and dark. It's death and life. It's good and bad. Uh, it is um, the way and not the way. Uh, it is the truth or a lie. He does these very simple compare and contrast statements throughout his Gospel. And so as I've argued before, so I'll argue again, when you teach and you preach the gospel, the only two possibilities of actually teaching and preaching the gospel is that people will be converted, Christians will continue to love it, and people who don't want Christ will hate it and reject it and make their hatred and their rejection known. Biblically, I have to argue, there's absolutely no middle ground. There's no middle ground whatsoever. Now, someone would say, well, if you look at the early chapters of the book of Revelation, uh, it says that there's a group that's lukewarm. They're kind of in the middle ground, aren't they? Not really. Because there's a special hatred that Christ has for those who will try and fly the, fa the flag of Zion, yet live like demons. And so what does the account in Revelation actually say? It says that I will spew them, or in other translations, I will vomit them, out of my mouth. Biblical command, if we go back all the way to the beginning, or we look at Jesus' ministry, is to choose this day whom you will serve. Now we see in our text the large crowd gathering to see the miraculous Christ. Remember, what He did was Lazarus, right? This is one of the big miracles. This is one of the big no-joke, no-question, no-David-Copperfield moment here. This was a miracle. It wasn't an illusion. So what did He do? Uh, just a, a chapter behind our sermon text in John's account, Lazarus is four days dead in a tomb. Alright, so just, just so you guys know, it's hot in Judea, alright? It's arid and it's hot. Bodies rot really quickly in that climate. 
All right? I can tell you that because I've operated in the Middle East. All right? They rot very quickly. And so four days dead means it's going to be, whew, that's going to be a rough one right there. All right? And literally when Jesus goes to say, hey, roll the, roll the, the stone of the tomb back, what does Lazarus' sister say? No, uh-uh-uh. Whoa, Lord, don't do it. No, 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 no. You don't understand. It's going to be stinky in there. It's going to be bad. Don't do that. Again, why did Jesus wait four days instead of three or instead of two? According to Jewish tradition, again, not Christian tradition, but Jewish tradition, the soul of a dead person would kind of hang around the body for three days. Interesting. So Jesus waits for four to make sure that Lazarus is double dead. And there is no one who could say, well, you know what? His spirit just hopped right back in his body and he came out of the tomb on his own. A dead, rotting corpse who Jesus called into life. Think about this. Look, look at the imagery. The stone is rolled away. Lazarus is dead. And he's sitting in a cave. Are caves known for their impressive amount of light? No, what are they known for? They're known for their impressive amount of darkness. So Jesus literally screams into there, Lazarus, come forth. Come out. Immediately, immediately, he comes to life. And what does he do? He stands up and he walks out of darkness into the light of day. Beautiful imagery there. Now Jesus does this in front of a crowd. There are people there. There are people who see this. There are people who come out of the woodworks to come and see, is this really Lazarus? Is this guy alive? Is he real? The answer is yes, he's alive. He's back. And for, for most people, that would cause... I'll tell you what, if there was a verifiable miracle of some teacher, preacher, evangelist, the next county over who legitimately raised somebody from the dead, guess what I'd do? I would run to that county and I would see what's going on. And I would start asking, is this guy really raised somebody from the dead? Is this real? So think about that in our context today. Now flash back to before they had television, news, or the radio. There were probably little boys sprinting from city to city. You're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this. Lazarus was dead. This guy come. He came. He spoke to Lazarus. And Lazarus came back to life. I don't believe it. Come see. Come look. Come see what happened. What do you think? Little group of boys get bigger. They're running. No joke. We saw Lazarus. He's alive. He's real. Come and see. There was absolutely no guessing. Lazarus was dead. Now is alive at the command of the voice of Jesus Christ, which is a miracle. Now, if you read the chapter, you will see that while immediately many people believed in the Christ, this is interesting, the Pharisees, along with the high priest, immediately conspire to kill Jesus. Immediately. So this guy literally has the power to bring people from death into life. Let's knock him off. <laughs> Let's get rid of this guy because this is just this is bad news for us. Why, why on earth would we want him to continue to live? Just to make things a, a touch more interesting, they decide to kill Lazarus as well. Why? <laughs> Everyone knows you can't have a dead guy running around pretending to be living 
uh, who's drawing fame and attention and crowds away from the religious establishment of the day. Can't do that, right? They can't beat Christ. They've tried to many times at this point. They've tried to trick Him. They've tried to debate with Him. They've tried to draw Him into traps. And you know what Christ does over and over and over again? Crushes their attempts. Destroys them with logic. Asks them questions that they cannot understand or fathom or are unwilling to answer. As a quick aside to the sermon text, um, If you knew someone literally had like an IQ of like 240, they're just like double brilliant, right? They're, they're literally double genius. If you knew that, would you walk in there and try and debate anything with them that you knew was logically false? No, why? They'd, 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 they would deconstruct every single one of your arguments, flip them around and make you look really foolish. Now imagine the God of the universe who knows everything. And you're going to try and out-logic Jesus? Or out-debate Jesus? Or outsmart Jesus? Or draw the guy who sees everything at all time in every possible way? You're going to draw him into a trap? That's really foolish, right? Oh, that's right, because Romans 1 says their foolish hearts were darkened. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for images made like man, birds, beasts, and crawling things. Foolishness. Again, because they can't trap Jesus in anything, I guess that kind of naturally progresses to hiring a hitman, doesn't it? <laughs> we can't beat him. Let's kill him. And that was the biblical account. Jesus knew this was going to happen. This was actually part of God's plan when you read the book of Acts. And you see that this was the predetermined, foreordained plan of God to execute His own Son on a cross. And so while God holds those sinful people responsible, at the same time, in their sinful free will, they walk out the perfect plan of God to kill the Christ. How beautiful is that? For most of us, hiring a hitman <laughs> or just gathering together a crowd to kill somebody who's performing legitimate miracles or the guy who used to be dead that is now alive. Think about this for a second. Logic again, right? Jesus brought Lazarus to life from the dead. Now you're going to kill Lazarus? Anybody picking up on the, the insanity of that? This guy just got brought back from the dead. Now you're going to try and kill him? Guess what's going to happen if Jesus wants him to be alive? He would just bring him right back to life. That's exactly what happened. So this is starting to expose the illogical argumentation, the, the, the ridiculous fallacy of this group when they think, you know what? Hey, yeah, we're, we'll just get, we'll kill Jesus, we'll kill Lazarus, then everything will be okay. It'll all be back to the way it used to be. But... For those who are blind and cannot see spiritual things, there is no hope. Let me say this again. No hope whatsoever short of God opening their eyes, their ears, and their hearts. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, and he's speaking to Nicodemus right now, Truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born again, 
He cannot see the kingdom of God. John 6.44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, brings him in, draws him close, draws him near. And if he does that, what? I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, 63-65 It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you, again, Jesus' words here, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray Him. And He was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted Him from the Father. Let's take it one step further. 1 Corinthians 2.14 1 Corinthians 2.14 But a natural man, i.e. an unconverted man, i.e. a not saved man, woman, child, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. Semicolon. And he cannot understand them. He's incapable of understanding them. He won't understand them. It's impossible to understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually appraised. we move into the meat of our story this is just setting the stage this is setting the stage for jesus before he comes into jerusalem this is important keep in mind just like we talked uh, earlier in in john chapter 6 we're reading about those verses there uh jesus knows things by the way jesus knew people's thoughts all right he knew everything now, I think it definitely, theologians would agree uh, that, that at some points Jesus veiled his, his own ability to see certain things. So that's why he would say things like, uh, I was amazed at this person's faith or astonished at this person's faith. Because guess what? If you cannot see the future, yeah, you will be amazed and astonished by things. But we knew that Jesus had the ability to read people's thoughts, but at times chose not to. At times chose not to. Why? He was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. He lived a life just like we did. It wasn't always just um, omniscience that he was walking around. And a lot of times he would veil his own omniscience, his ability to see everything and know everything. Why? Because he can sympathize and empathize with our situation as human beings, says the writer of Hebrews. That's why he's the great high priest. But keep in mind, Jesus knew the death plot that was about to take place and he left Bethany. This is where, this is where the, the, you know, the, the raising of Lazarus had occurred. All right? he, he left Bethany and he willingly entered Jerusalem. He knows what's about to happen. Does it say um, he ran away from Jerusalem? Does it say, oh, he punched out of the region and went and took a break? Until the Passover occurred, then he could you know, continue on his earth. No, it said he went to Jerusalem willingly. Let's continue on in our text. John 12, 12 through 16. On the next day, so this is the next day after, after these uh, events transpired in Bethany, the large crowd who had come to the feast, and that would be the Passover, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. He began to shout, quote, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. It's an important statement. I would underline that. Even the King of Israel right there. 
Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples didn't understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, when he went up into heaven, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and they had done these things to him. Point two. It was necessary that Jesus' death should be voluntary because the wrath of God could be appeased only by a sacrifice of obedience. John Calvin. Only by a sacrifice of obedience. Think about that. Jesus ran away. Did some group... You know, in the cartoons, they have those giant cannons that shoot the nets out. They shoot a net on Jesus and then trap him and then drag him unwillingly into Jerusalem. No. He came on his own, willing, obedient to the will of the Father, knowing the terrible fate that awaited him. He chose to do that on his own. Now, I want you to look back at the text, look back in the very beginning. Uh, this great crowd. It's interesting they use this language. Where was the crowd from? Where was it from? Simple answer, from the outside. Why? Because it says that those who came to the feast. So imagine this, if you are a Jew anywhere, all right, the one time you're going to want to be able to get back to Jerusalem during the whole year is during Passover. So if you lived in a different country, a different city, a different region, guess what you would do? You would start your journey and you would come back to Jerusalem so that you could celebrate the Passover in the temple. All right, that was a big deal. So most people would agree that generally the population of Jerusalem would swell to possibly three to four million people. That's a, that's a bunch of people. That's a whole bunch of people. They're simply to celebrate the Passover. But notice who the people who are gathered there are. It's not the people from Jerusalem. It's the people who had come for the Passover. Hmm. Outsiders to Jerusalem. So what, what am I getting at here? I'm getting at the fact that it was not those who should have been most knowledgeable about the Christ that came out to greet Him. It wasn't. It wasn't those who saw the temple, the place where God's literal physical manifest presence used to actually dwell. It wasn't those people who saw the temple every day that came out to greet Him. It wasn't uh, <clears throat> those who were expert teachers in Old Testament Judaism and had the vast majority of the Old Testament memorized that came out to greet him, was it? It was people who were excited about Christ and who wanted to know more about him that came out to greet him. It's very important. And they do something specific. They, they took the, the branches of palm trees, likely date palms, they, they rip them off the trees, and they, they, they come out to meet Jesus and they say something very interesting. Hosanna. Hosanna. Which literally translated means save, please. Save us, please. Save us, please. Likely, they 
would have gotten this from the Hillel, which was the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, Jerusalem was a city on a hill, still is a city on a hill. And as the Jews would travel from their various places, they would uh, sing through the Hillel, which is a certain collection of Psalms, also known as the Psalms of Ascent. And so as they're walking uphill, they're ascending, they would sing these Psalms. So this is one of those Psalms, Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. O Lord, Hosanna. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. Save, please. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. But, remember that thing I asked you to underline? They said something else pretty specific, didn't they? As they tied that text there to what was going on, they said, even the king of Israel. Even the king of Israel. Now, when biblical, when a group knows that all of its power is going to go away, they often react foolishly, rashly, and violently. Now, this was the realization of that moment for the Pharisees, for the scribes, for the teachers, for the high priest himself. The crowds now desired Jesus in his teaching more than the religious tradition and the religious teachers of the day. They wanted to see him and be near him, and they wanted to listen to him. Think about that. Dwell on that. So as we continue in our sermon text, we now see that Christ is literally seated on a donkey, the cold of a donkey. But in John's account, it just says this kind of happens. So how did the donkey get there? Uh, so let's look at one of the parallel gospel accounts. It's out of Mark 11, verses 1 through 3. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, Jesus, he, sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, excuse me, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. So Jesus um, knew where the donkey was before he chose to sit on it and ride it into Jerusalem and actually organized the procurement of said donkey. That's interesting. That's very interesting. <laughs> it means that he knew what he wanted to do with it because Mark's account literally says the Lord has need of it. And when Jesus needs something or he says he needs something, it's probably pretty important and probably significant, but we can pass over that very quickly in the text, can't we? Very, very quickly. So now, flash forward, Jesus is on the young donkeys riding into the town. People are waving their date palm branches likely, and they're screaming out, Hosanna. They're excited about Jesus coming in. They're throwing their coats literally out into the street. It says in other uh, Gospel accounts that, that some people put their coats on the donkey itself before Jesus actually sat on it. Why? Because they don't even want Him to touch the ground. They don't even want Him to touch the ground. The celebration here is the celebration of a king entering a city. This is why the Pharisees are in an uproar. They can't get the power back. So, really interesting, Jesus chooses to ride a donkey 
That doesn't make any sense to me at all. He chooses to ride a donkey. Pharisees are wanting to kill him. And he's coming in on a donkey. On someone's coat. Now let's step behind the historical cultural scene of the day and let's look at actually what, why did he do this? What's the likely uh, uh, indication of why he chose to do this specific thing? Why he chose to organize the procurement of the donkey and why he wrote, actually rode the donkey into Jerusalem? If a king in that day were coming into a town and he was there to do business with that town, let's say it's a town that's not his own. If he was there for peace, he would ride one of two things. He would ride a young stallion that had never really been trained, skittish, young, immature, not capable of really doing much on it at all, or he would ride the colt of a donkey, indicating the fact that he was there for peaceful means. This is very interesting because let's look at the flip side of this. We actually have a future glimpse into how Jesus Christ himself will return. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Now this would be John, the same John who wrote the book of John, now writing Revelation. So the I in here is John. And I, John, saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. He has an army behind him. From his mouth a sharp sword comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he, Jesus, treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, here it is, King of kings and Lord of lords. Ah, peaceful entry into Jerusalem right before the Passover. On an untrained animal. Something that no one had ever yet sat upon. Revelation 19, the most glorious beast made for war. Perfect. Trained. Ready. You read the account of what horses are in Job and you'll very quickly see, you'll very, very quickly see that horses were made for war. He's coming. He's coming. And when he comes again, he will not come to make peace. He will come to wage war. That is why this account in John's Gospel, in John 12, is so important for us. Because here we see the peace of Christ offered freely. In John's account of the triumphal entry, Jesus is on a donkey for the making of peace with men and God. So Jesus picks that colt instead of a horse as He comes in Jerusalem and He fulfills Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. 
He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So do you see why the Old Testament now is so important to us, even as New Testament Christians? It's, incredible, it's vitally important to us. It's vitally necessary to us. We must have it. If we do not have the Old Testament, then Christ is just this crazy guy performing some magic tricks in the New Testament. But if we have the Old Testament, and He's perfectly fulfilling literally every single prophecy about Him to the point where He chooses before He comes into Jerusalem to say, hey, you guys who don't know what's going on, go over here to this village. There's a donkey there, by the way. There's a colt of a donkey that's never been ridden. I want you to set this up so that I can ride this bad boy into Jerusalem. And even the people who went and did that for him did not understand the implications of the fulfillment of that text in Zechariah until Jesus actually went back up into heaven. And so we have this beautiful perspective of New Testament Christians. We're, we're, we're getting to do the, the whole you know, Monday night quarterback thing. We'll get back and say, yeah, of course, you, yeah, you didn't see that. That was really foolish. That was really dumb that you guys didn't understand that this text was about to be fulfilled. But how little of the Old Testament is actually known in most churches? How little? Hmm. Not only was he about to ride in Jerusalem and die a terrible death at the hands of people who hated him, in order that he might appease the wrath of God against those who are his, those who belong to Jesus. But he fulfilled every single portion of Scripture along the way. And he did so perfectly. He was perfect in his obedience, perfect in his willingness, and he knew he was about to become the most perfect sacrifice. A sacrifice. John 12, verses 17 through 19. So the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. So pause for a second. These people are continuing. If you see someone dead, someone someone who's dead, literally raised into life, guess what you're going to do? You're going to talk about it. And so at this point, they have not stopped talking about it. They won't stop talking about it. They're still going. They continue to testify about him. For this reason also, the people went and met him because they had heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, I would underline one another because this is, this is awesome. The Pharisees said to one another, so Pharisees said to other Pharisees, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, The world has gone after him. Point three. Believe. Believe. That's the point. That's the whole point right there. Believe. I know it's a simple point, but it needs to be said. Believe. Look at the text. People continued to testify about him. People came out and wanted to see him. They met him and people heard from others and those others came out. They wanted to see and when they saw, they believed. Even those who were trying to destroy him saw it. Even those who were trying to destroy him saw it. They said, what we are up to is not working 
and the whole world is going after him. Believe. Just believe. John chapter 3, verse 15. So that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 6.29 Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. John 6.47 Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. As we prepare to celebrate this week, the Passion Week, as we look forward to Good Friday, we look forward to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the being the raising of Christ from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, as we look forward to him literally walking the earth for 40 more days after he was raised from the dead, and then ascending with angels on high, believe. I can't make it up. This isn't my story. This isn't. The Bible is not my story. It's the story of Christ. Believe. Everywhere I go, I say that. Repent and believe. So few people do. And so few people truly understand how beautiful Christ is how wonderfully majestic He is, how perfectly holy He is. And we will come and sit passively and do nothing about the Christ. But He commands something. He says, believe. Charles Spurgeon, he would say this every time he walked up the stairs to where his pulpit was in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And then he would start to preach. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in God the Father. I believe. It's that simple. It's not some crazy magic trick or formula or hard problem. Repent of your sins and believe. Turn from your wickedness and live, says God. Believe. Christians, continue to believe. Remember, remember that man. His kids possessed by a demon. Kids throwing himself into fire. He's seizing out. Foam's coming out of his mouth. Literally, it says that in the biblical account. Brings him to Jesus and says, Jesus, will you heal him? Jesus looks at him and says, Do you believe? And he says, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. As Christians, that's what we should be saying every day. Me personally, that's what I need to be saying every day. Lord, I believe, 
but help my unbelief. Help me to grow. Help me to love my wife more. Help me to be more sacrificial to her and for her. Help me to be more humble. Help me to be more kind. Help me to spend more time with my kids, loving on them and teaching them things. Help me to not be self-absorbed. Help me to not be selfish. God, help me to not be X, Y, and Z because I see that all those things are against you and I, I repent, God. I turn from those and I want more of you. I need more of you because I believe you. And it's tough and it's difficult sometimes in the Christian life. Believe. Father, we love you. You're beautiful. You're real. I'm so encouraged by what Christ did. That though I was wicked and desperate and hated Christ with my life and my actions and my words, that He would ride willingly to His death on an untrained beast of burden. And He didn't just do that for me. That He did it for all of those who You would call unto Yourself. God, that He would bear upon Himself the weight, the crushing eternal weight of iniquity, wickedness, and sin. And that in a period of a few hours, God, He would propitiate Your wrath. God, He would absorb that and appease Your wrath by You punishing Him. God, I don't understand why it says in Isaiah that it pleased You to crush Him. But I know that if You did not crush Him, You would have to crush me. And You would have to crush many who do not believe in You. So I thank You for what Christ is setting up for us in preparation for this coming Friday and this coming Sunday. At least the celebration of it. Let us put our eyes to the Christ. Let us focus on the Christ. Let us worship the Christ. But most importantly, God, let us believe the Christ. God, bless our worship. Bless our friendships. God, bless this community. God, bless its people. And help us to be a light in a dark place. Father God, it is in Your name we pray. And in accordance with Your will we ask. Amen. In closing, I know that uh, we have to announce our Good Friday service uh, will be here uh, at 6.30 p.m. Uh, and then also our coming uh, Easter service will be here normal hours at 10 a.m. on Sunday. Let me close us in our reading from Jude, and this will be out of Jude 24 and Jude 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God bless you.
Happy Lord's Day. Happy Palm Sunday.